Hey, everybody. Yep, I'm Cindy from Oakland, and I'm an, I identify myself as an all-around addict. I have identified myself as um, that way as, as long as I, when I started going to AA meetings instead of just NA meetings, because um, I was like, fuck you, I'm not an addict alcoholic, I'm just an all-around addict. Um, and that's not just with drugs and alcohol. I, I have an addictive nature. Um, and I think it was really um, nurtured. So it was definitely both nurture and nature in my, in my view. It definitely it runs in the family, um, but it also, because it runs in the, the direct family, uh, like parents, um, they, they nurtured that in me as well. Um, so my story, let's see. Uh, I don't wanna take up all of the time I wanna get, give time for people to be able to speak. So I kind of want to go through it as quickly as I can. And I kind of have to go through it a little quickly. I just turned 62 yesterday. And yes, I know I look fabulous, but I also paid $20,000 for a facelift four years ago. So don't feel bad. Um, it, it, you know, you do what you got to do when you don't have kids and you're vain and I have 25 years of recovery. And that also was part of my gift to myself for, you know, just the clean time and for, you know, wanting to do something for myself. I got very, oh, I, I really wanted to do something for myself. Um, and then I, and I've been all caught up in doing service as well. And like we were talking earlier with somebody here, it was that my service isn't necessarily always with, with 12 step, that my service is also outside of 12 step as well. But um, get doing, I'll get into the service work later, but that's also about getting out of yourself. Um, so a long time ago, um, I was grow, brought up in the 60s and 70s, and they were, you know, you think these are weird times. Those are fucking weird times, like really weird times. I look back on it, and the kind of things for, like, the young people today, if they only know, um, I was given the diet pill at age 13 because I was about 30 pounds overweight, couldn't sleep. So of course he gave me some pills to help me sleep. Um, that was really my first speed run. Um, actually before then um, I had had my first drink at age 11, let's start before then at age 11. And you know, it's, it's interesting because alcohol never ended up being my primary drug ever. Um, it was always the thing I picked up before I picked up the cigarettes then picked up the or the other way around cigarettes and then alcohol and then drugs um but um and before then i realized later it was turns out sugar was my first drug of choice um and i didn't address that until last so i basically i was like peeling away the layers of the onion which always is a weird analogy for me and the onion onions stink you know when you peel away the layers it's like you get down to the, the base of the onion and it stinks it's like that's why the layers are on there in the first place um but in any case i kept peeling away and i kept and i you know i as i took the substances away the like the drugs and the alcohol and the cigarettes i realized that um and it took me years of recovery really to realize 
where it really started for me. And that was with really poor nutrition. I grew up in the 60s where, you know, in, in elementary school, I'd come home from, from school and we could eat anything we wanted. You know, it was kind of this catch-22 of being privileged. And I grew up in a kind of privileged, you know, white bread, suburban Boston environment, um, really sheltered. And um, I could just go in the fridge and take out the dryer's ice cream, which was new at the time. It's like, oh, my gosh. And just take a spoon and start eating it. Um, and then uh, it's like, so no wonder I was 30 pounds overweight at age 13. Um, and then my parents were what they, they described themselves as nighttime alcoholics. Okay. Um, so that to them, they were very functioning. Well, they were functioning, sure, at work. They were not functioning well as parents, but they kind of didn't consider that. Um, and their, um, their friends owned a liquor store, which is very handy. Um, and they would buy you know, Kahlua for the kids because they like the sweet stuff. And um, so we had a, a closet full of cases of beer and Kahlua and scotch and whiskey and all the stuff. And um, and age 11, I had really, uh, I, I went to a, a wedding and uh, had champagne and that's all I remember. So the first time I drank, I blacked out. And interestingly enough, I don't think I really blacked out from alcohol um, ever, ever again. But it certainly was kind of an indication there, you know, and I was with my my cousin who um, we were very close and he ended up in rehab as a teenager. Um, So so we start with we start with food and then we start with alcohol. And then I had I started smoking by age 11, 12, and my parents were two, three packs a, a day smokers, you know, Marlboros, crazy, hardcore. And so my mother gave me permission to smoke in the house by age 13, which I knew was probably a mistake, but I wasn't going to say no. She didn't want me to burn the house down. That was her thinking. Um, and she just didn't want to deal with, you know, me you know, and my angst and whatever. And so I was up to two packs a day by the time I was 16. So I was a chimney. I was a freaking chimney. Um, and then the speed run with the diet pills, um, that was really, I had already smoked pot by then and smoked hash, which I don't know if anybody smokes hash anymore, maybe in Europe, but um you know, so I was definitely in that scene of being, I was part of like the cool kids, but I was also studious. And so I went through that and I had two older sisters who were complete wild child, completely wild. Um, and I'm the one that stayed home and became kind of the caretaker. So there's that whole, if anybody's done adult children of alcoholics, ACA, um, there's definitely roles that you learn that you take. And I definitely took kind of the lost child role, which is kind of the one left behind. Um, And I kind of uh, became very inward. I knew how to do, be my mother. I learned how to be my mother early on. I learned how to be a hostess. I I know how to deal with people. I know how to be sociable. 
everybody thinks I'm an extrovert. And the real truth of it is, is that I'm an introvert that knows how to act like an extrovert. Um, I find it exhausting, but it's okay. You know, I mean, I just, in other words, it's not where I get my energy. I get, I recharge alone. Um, I, and, and true extroverts just recharge by being around people. Um, so anyways, I got, you know, through the whole teenage years and whatnot, I didn't really identify as an addict yet, but I did identify my parents as alcoholics. And back, you know, this was the, you know, the early 70s or, you know, 74. So I remember I called Alatine, which was pretty new then, I think. Um, and I don't remember getting very far with it, but I definitely knew I wanted help. And I sat down with my dad in his office of this car dealership that he owned. And, and I asked him to quit drinking, which was fucking bold. And um, he, he was very E.F. Hutton about it, if anybody remembers E.F. EF Hutton on, in the U.S. Um, it's like, mm, I'll think about it. Um, you know, kind of gruff. Yeah, well, he never did. But I was keenly aware of addiction and alcoholism. And um, then I got into the cocaine scene in the, the late 70s through friends of my sister's and um, totally, totally into that. But I, I, again, I wasn't like really out there like doing it every day. It was more of a fun partying thing, I guess. Because it's weird when I think back on my life, I don't remember really a lot of like real fun partying. There were cer certain times. Um, I got in my car one day and um, I, I drove across country uh, to California and I never went back. Uh, I was supposed to go back and start Berkeley College of Music. I really wanted to be a rock star, which, you know, there was no like college for rock stars, but there was. Berkeley College of Music in Boston, which was more of a jazz kind of, not even my cup of tea thing, but I got in for the summer session and I called my mother and I said, can you get my tuition back? And I ended up in San Francisco in 1981 and I was on my own away from, you know, the caretaking of my mom and dad, away from my sisters, I really was the, the one that got away. And I basically, you know, started, to me, I, I felt like it was, I look back, and I'm a late bloomer, in a sense, in that I stood, stayed back to take care of my mom and dad, kind of in their alcoholism, and I'd make them dinner at night and all this stuff. When I left and didn't come back, come back, I started, like, having almost like my college years. I never went to college, um, but that's when I started having fun. And that's when the drugs were fun, when acid was kind of fun and weird. And there was a punk rock scene, which I was only on the edge of. I mean, Jesus, I went to a punk rock show in like 1982 in San Francisco, mind you. And I was tripping my brains out and I was in all white. Now, that's not something you do at a punk rock show. I will, I go in there and it's like, you know, neon, what is the, 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 the black lights everywhere. So I'm really standing out. And um, I just didn't, didn't feel like I belonged, but it's just kind of one of those things. I think back, I go, okay, I guess that was fun. 
you know, um, I got married to uh, uh, my my love. I loved him. I did love him very much. Um, however, he was a bisexual hairdresser and we were very much not a good match for each other. And it turns out uh, a couple years later when we got divorced, I didn't know that he had been shooting speed the whole time. I was married to the guy and I didn't know he was shooting speed. That was my first instinct or it, um, not it, my first kind of run in with knowing about how people can be completely tuned out to what's going on. Um, a year later, I was an IV drug addict because I met the wrong guy who said, here, let me just do it. Let me do it. And um, that's what happens to, you know, youth. And I was lonely and I thought it was love and it wasn't love. And um, I was already doing a lot of speed at the time. And I was in my 20s and I was lost, basically. And then I kind of, I, and I don't blame him at all. I mean, I actually, you know, I, I think I, uh, when I, there's a, I had totally forgive him for one thing. He's also since hung himself. So it's kind of, um, he, he was a tragic story and I'm so grateful I didn't stay with him. Um, I, I'm basically, I'm so grateful he left me. Let's put it that way. And, um, but he did leave me with a pretty bad addiction. And I knew as soon as I put a needle in my arm, oh, this is bad. <laughs> yeah, there's one thing I'm so grateful. Some people come into the program and they go, God, I'm not really sure I'm an alcoholic or I'm not really sure you know, I just been smoking pot a lot. And, you know, I hear these people who are junkies and I don't compare. I'm like, honey, if, if, if you think you have a problem, you probably do. And that you hear that a lot. And it's true. If you put a needle in your arm, you have a problem. There ain't no thinking about it. There's nobody does that casually, especially goes. I, I had to go and learn how to do it myself because he was doing it. And once I learned how to do it myself, I was like an, a a down, downhill skiing right there, right down the hill. And I could not maintain jobs. I went, I, I quit my job and I got temp work because temp work you could say no to. Um, the only, the, my, my mother knew everything, but she was 3000 miles away and tried to get me into rehab. And I said, no, long before Amy Winehouse said no. Um, and I said, I can't, I'm, I have a life. I can't possibly go to rehab. Um, you know, I have a cat who's going to take care of the cat. You know, all the things, all the things. Um, but what happened was I did have, and I also was kind of wanted to be, I was, a, I was really self-conscious too. And I also didn't know anything about the 12-step scene. And I was, I was in a really bad way. I was, one of the things that you don't hear a lot talked about here, and it happened a lot in in this time, and it happened a lot in a relapse, I'll, I'll mention too, was a lot of, um, I did a lot of surgery on myself, basically. A lot of picking, a lot, I, I would steal like lancets and um, 
and sharp things from dermatologists so that I could dig into my skin. Um, I would basically lose my mind once I was, was on um, my drug of choice. And there were times, the one time I think it was the worst was I was um, in the bathroom for about 16 hours. And um, I, when I finally got myself out of there, I had edema, swelling of the legs so bad I could barely walk. And it was basically because my mind was, was, I was conscious on one side, but on the other side, I was completely out of control. And um, that, I, I had lost any fun. Um, there was no fun. And I, anyway, so I spent a lot of time at General Hospital at the time in the 80s in San Francisco, you, you could get, you could actually get healthcare for free. You could go to General Hospital and they would see you and they wouldn't charge you. Um, it's amazing. They don't do that now. And I was on any, I basically lived on anti antibiotics in between. And then there was, wasn't a lot of time in between. So I have a lot of scars. I have a lot of scarring that you can't see over the lovely zoom filters, um, some white, white spots all over my back and my chest and, and my face. And I've, you know, also that's one of the reasons I've gotten a lot of kind of cosmetic work done is to try to do, it's part of reparations really to myself. I did a lot of damage. And what happens with drugs is that, especially if you're using um, needles, is that you're, you're basically putting, um, you know, bacteria directly into your bloodstream, essentially. And so I was constantly fighting that battle and losing. Um, and then it, it kind of sort of became a, um, a, a self-harm a way just to do self-harm. Um, I self-loathing was, was running rampant. That was, that was, I was all about self-loathing. What I didn't realize was that it was also based in clinical depression. In the eighties, it wasn't a big, huge thing yet. It was starting to get into Prozac nation thing. I got into 12 step, my first 12 step program, uh, a meeting was in spring of 1989. And I actually stayed clean for, well, after a quick slip where I didn't realize that alcohol was part of this thing. I was like, you know, I was, it's, anyways, I was outed in a bar where somebody, somebody pointed out to me, uh, not in a bar, but in the meeting, somebody said, I saw you at the club the other night and you were drinking. I was like, and I burst into tears. I said, but I haven't had speed for 30 days. You don't understand. And they were all like, you know, the guy was completely off base, you know, absolutely not the thing to do, but he was also right. I had been drinking and I didn't understand that, you know, uh, that alcohol was a drug period. I quickly understood that when I drank, I called my dealer. So alcohol not being my primary drug didn't mean it wasn't a problem for me. Um, I needed to be completely present and deal with whatever completely present meant. And I ended up staying clean and I did the 12 steps and I got a sponsor, actually I had two sponsors and I stayed clean for five and a half years. And in the mid, uh, and I, and it wasn't until I got clean that I could do my music. It's interesting too. It's like, 
I like all my twenties, I completely just blew away. And those, that was the, when I had the energy. So when I got into, into the program, I finally could get my shit together. And I ended up playing in bands and we played around San Francisco. And I, I kind of lived my dream, but partially, like I never really did the whole touring thing. And honestly, in my thirties, you know, I was, I was just not into it as much that, you know, to go, I would also have died, quite frankly. It was really good. I didn't go on tour. It was actually in the clubs that I started slipping. Um, And that was the, you know, around 94. And what I realized was, in retrospect, I started in sort of subtle ways. There was a particular year, I was kind of alone. I had moved from San Francisco to Oakland, which is over a bridge, basically. It's 10 miles, not even, but it could have been a million miles. I didn't, I stopped going to meetings. So I didn't know meeting people over on the Oakland side. I I didn't know anything. I basically just stayed in my, my place and I tried to give away my cats. I had two cats. They were like 12 and 13 years old. Like, what was that about? I I look back on it with horror as an animal person now. But I also look, helps me to look upon people with, with forgiveness as well, because I deal with two different shelters and I see people, you know, they, they, this one shelter just, got a 15 year old cat surrendered to them the cat was gorgeous 22 pound beauty i'm like who would do that? i don't know never mind like <laughs> who would do that i would do that in the midst of or the beginnings of what was going to be one hell of a relapse and so i started that was one of my first signs and i didn't i didn't see it as a sign i i don't even understand in my memory what made it okay um, I started smoking again and I had had a couple of years off of smoking and then I started drinking again and part, some of the, my band members weren't in the program. So they had no idea what that meant. No idea. Ironically, I started drinking again with my former sponsor. Um, so that was weird. And by the time I went out and and, and decided um, I was going to go use again um, my drug of choice, I, both of the cats were back with me. I had to buy one of them back because one of them I had given to um, apparently, unbeknownst to me, a a couple of crack addicts, and they um, couldn't take care of her and uh, wouldn't give her back to me unless they gave them five dollars or something. Okay, fine, I'll give you seventy five dollars got both my cats back and then went out on a run. Um, And I said to myself, I believe it was even out loud, but it was certainly at least out loud in my head. I know that this is gonna be hell, but at least it'll be a different kind of hell. I knew that I I wasn't gonna go out to have fun. It was almost like a, punishment, I guess, or, uh, or at least it's a hell I know. 
And the hell that I was in, I considered calling a psychiatrist. And we were still in that kind of era of, ah, you know, Prozac was all this bullshit is overprescribed, all this stuff. And a little bit of that, that um, kind of nixing psychiatry, even though the program doesn't do that. It's people that do that and peers that will do that. And I never did. I did. I never made the phone call. Instead, I went and I copped and I had, I was out for about seven months that time. Um, and I ended up, I started off the, the very first time, the first time I ended up putting a needle, I tried to shoot up through my, my feet and I lost almost all the feeling in my foot. So I ended up at a neurologist and um, I, I thought it was kind of hilarious because he told me I'd be fine, but then he took me back in the back room and um, I got a 30, 30 minute lecture on Jesus. <laughs> oh, gee, what? I deserve this. I totally deserve this. And that was just the beginning. Um, toward the end, one of the last things, but not the very last thing it, I actually used after this, I ended up in a skilled nursing facility for nine days because I had dug a hole so deep in my face that they were afraid it was MRSA. And MRSA was kind of a new thing then, uh, you know, the infection that they didn't know how to fight. And so, um, and my, they sent a plastic surgeon to come and look at me and, and turns out he was an AA. I went, I deserve this too. And I um, ended up actually in my first rehab. And I say my first because I went through rehab. I liked rehab. I did well in rehab. I was a little bit of a, oh, I already know 12 step. You don't have to teach me anything. Um, but I liked group therapy and it got me back into meetings. I didn't stay clean. Why? And I, I look back and I, it's because I didn't finish the program really. I did the 30 days, but I didn't do the aftercare. They had a year of aftercare I could have gone to and I'd quit going. And um, I didn't use against terribly, terribly, like it didn't end, end me up in the hospital again, but it was bad enough that I ended up in another rehab in, in, in Oakland. And this time I did the whole thing. I did the whole thing. I said, I just can't do this anymore. I was already, I was in my, you know, my mid thirties. I'm like, this has got to stop. And so I did it. I got, I, I did my rehab. I went, got back in the program. I, you know, did the 12 steps again. And that was um, May 13th, 1996. And so since then, it actually is a lot shorter story. It's a lot of years, but it's a lot shorter story because there's not a lot of drama. Like one of the things I had to do in, in rehab, and I highly recommend this, if you're a drama queen, is drop the drama. I was also addicted to drama. You know, um, I was so afraid of being, I guess, bored, boring, what? I don't know. But I actually had a handle called drama queen because back in the, in the early bulletin board, you know, the chat days of, of the internet, um, back when we were all using modems, um, 
my drama, my handle was drama queen. And she said, you got to stop using that. I'm like, really? Come on. She said, nope, you got to stop using that. And so I did. I stopped using it. Even though it was just kind of a reflection, it wasn't like really about, um, you know, I still also had a problem with um, kind of isolation. So I had to kind of make myself go to meetings. And I, at that point too, you couldn't touch me with a 10 foot pole. Um, you know, my sexually, I was just like, you know, after that one guy and, you know, relationships, not my strong point, definitely not my strong point, but uh, about uh, a year, I had a year clean and I met a guy in a meeting um, who had about six months clean. And this is what's called a 13th step. Um, although it wasn't immediately a 13 step, I will say he actually had nine months clean by the time it was an act, we consummated our 13th step and we broke the bed by, mind you. And I tell you this because we're still together today. And so they can work. I don't, I'm not going to recommend them or not recommend them. It's basically, I have found somebody, that, you know, the reason he, got me was he asked if I would play Scrabble with him. I was like, okay, that I can do. Like, you, you want to know how to pick up a girl? If you want to pick up a, a, a crazy girl, ask her to play Scrabble with him. And, and we found that we were relatively an intellectual match, even though um, he had a, you know, master's in computer science from Berkeley. And, um, but turns out over the years, I had learned, um, computers and Unix and I had kind of become a Unix chick and a computer chick and an IT chick and we could talk and we could talk the same language and we could talk recovery um, and we could smoke like fiends together and we could quit cigarettes together and then we did Weight Watchers together and we did Jenny Craig together we did all these weight loss programs because we both also had we were both speed freaks we were both like sugar addicts we we're both like and then we're different in other ways, but we were really compatible in the ways that really were important. And especially um, I found with him, his name is David, um, even though he doesn't love 12-step programs. And I, um, a part of that is because his dad is kind of a 12-step addict, long story, but it can really turn you off if, if you proselytize this shit. This is why it's attraction rather than rather than promotion. I I, I can't stress it enough. Um, but we stayed together. He, he I found a good guy. I found a good guy that wasn't gonna cause me drama. He wasn't a bad boy, so he he wasn't interesting in that way. He was nice. He was kind. Um, he had his own shit though too, and I had mine. And in those years, um, you know, I've been going to meetings and doing 12 step and he's decided he didn't doesn't really want to but he fully you know supports me and gives me the space to go and do my thing and um you know and I still feel like he's basically in recovery and he, he feels like he's not but that's kind of that's his thing not mine but there hasn't been a lot to report I've actually had two stable jobs two jobs I probably had 30 in my 20s. When I got clean the second time around in 1996, I worked for one, a bank. I worked for them for 
11 years and now I work for a healthcare company and I've been with them for 12 years and I'm about to retire in about a year. I mean, stability. And was it boring? No. Life is as boring as you make it. Um, and you do have to make, you know, put some effort in. Um, but the only reason I was really able to is because I did address like as before I even got into before I even got clean. In fact, I, I ended up going to a shrink and exploring antidepressants um, and doing therapy. And over the years, I've done every kind of antidepressant there is. I mean, we're we're all we're the guinea pigs. We know it. There's no test. But when I I knew that it was my my issue when after my first week of antidepressants, I realized, oh my God, nothing's changed. This is what normal people probably feel like because I don't feel like bursting into tears every day. I don't feel like everything's my fault. I don't feel like a victim anymore. Um, it also helped to work the steps where I started taking responsibility for my side of things for my life um, rather than it's so easy to just blame everybody else and to blame bad parenting. Um, and, I, you know, I could do all the blaming I want, but the thing that really healed me the most is forgiveness and forgiving myself. I was at the top of the list there, forgiving myself, uh, forgiving anybody who did me harm um, and seeking forgiveness through, particularly through my change changing my life, changing my actions, being of service within the program and outside of the program. A thing I didn't find until I was in my 50s. Boy, for my, that was like, how many years into recovery? Like nearly 20. I discovered doing service. Um, well, basically I started working as a volunteer with dogs at a shelter, city shelter, and found that nobody was there taking care of the dogs that came in matted and awful and like like straight out of a, a, a Sarah McLaughlin video. It's just like, oh my God, it was just driving me nuts. And I ended up, I spent a bunch of money because I could afford it. And I went and learned and I got certified how to do, to do dog grooming. And now I do dog grooming and I will only do it for free. And I do it for two shelters and I do it for... Um, people who simply can't afford it. I do it for people who um, have difficult dogs that will bite a groomer. Ah, try me. Um, I will do it. I, I will do. I will wash a snake. I will groom anything. I washed a snake. I have shaved rabbits and cats. I mean, anything for the animal to feel better. And it's just, I am passionate about it. I thought I was just going to be passionate about going back into music and doing doing that. I'm like, nope. I found this and I, it, it's just, I don't know that everybody finds their passion in life. I don't think everybody has to find a passion in life, but boy, I found my passion and I'm so grateful. And one of the things that makes me passionate about it is that it's, it's not about me. I just love that it's not about me. Um, I, I can't tell you what I get out of that. Um, I, I, I really highly recommend doing any kind of service. And if you're having a problem, like wanting to be in a meeting, 
do service in a meeting. Whether if it's in Zoom, then we need hosts to do, you know, to do the meetings. We need Zoom hosts. We need people to help, you know, manage the waiting rooms or whatever. If if it's in once it's back in person, if it's not in person already for you, there's plenty of service to do. Give yourself a reason to be there, and then start pushing yourself a little bit further. Um, but first things first, we're, it's all about really just being present. Um, Meditation is not my strong point, but I do believe uh, in um, in kind of just trying to be present. Uh, it's not my, it's just, you know, I'm a speed freak. I'm kind of like, woo, but um, that's me not on drugs. So you can imagine me on drugs. I want to give some people some time to um, to talk here. I'm not sure how I want to wrap this up other than um, I, I really, um, I've never talked about myself so much as during the pandemic, <laughs> because I really, I've never shared my story this many times, probably in the last 10 years, as I have over Zoom, just because it's just, we're everywhere now. And now my my favorite meeting in my, my home group is actually a Zoom Thursday night Godless Heathen meeting that... Um, I adore. It's it's really my favorite meeting. Uh, Tusnua, thank you too, as well as IPAN meetings. I love these UK meetings, um, and I love being New York meetings. I went to one in Paris. Um, it's just amazing, and so I really appreciate the global nature of it. Now I appreciate that we're going to stay global and stay connected, and that's really the magic of it. And I um, appreciate you guys being here at whatever time zone it is, wherever you are. And um, thanks for listening to me drone on and take care. I hope to hear from each and every one of you if we have time. Thanks.